I trust that it is a good thing for us to sit beneath the, word, the reading and preaching of God's word tonight. And I invite you now to please turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. I'll start in verse 1, but before I read the text for this evening, please join me in a prayer of illumination as we ask God to open our eyes and to help us. So please pray with me. Our God, our King, our light, our help, this evening we come casting ourselves before you, recognizing that there is no reason in us that you would show us any mercy, but recognizing that on account of your grace, you delight to make this time a time of great fruitfulness for your people. And I pray as we are here together, listening to your voice, that you would make Make your word effectual to us, that you would make it effective to bear the right sort of fruit, to produce the right sort of faith in your people. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he, that is, this is Jesus speaking, that he entered Capernaum. And now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they, the elders, came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. There are many things that are extremely hard for people to do. It's hard for people to climb to the top of Mount Everest. It's hard for people to run a mile in a time under four minutes. It's hard for people to cross the barren wastelands of icy Antarctica to reach the South Pole. 
but perhaps almost as difficult as these things is this. It's hard for people like you and me to ask for help. Asking for help is hard for a variety of reasons. For one thing, it shows that we don't have the knowledge or the ability to take care of issues on our own. It's also hard because it opens up the possibility that somebody could reject us. That they could say, I'm sorry, I don't have time for you. Go do it yourself. But asking for help can be especially hard when we know we don't deserve help. When we aren't able to give something back to the person who is helping us. We don't want to admit it when we're helpless. We're proud. We like independence. We don't want to reveal how needy we are. For as long as possible, we want to convince other people that we're strong, that we're smart, that we know how to take care of ourselves, that we don't need the help of anyone else. But here's the deal. We, we are needy. We depend on other people for even the most simple things, to keep the lights on, to grow the food that supplies the grocery stores, to fix the roads, especially in Michigan, it seems like that is highly in demand, to manufacture our household goods, to provide us with friendship, to give us health care, so many other things. Yet beyond all these things, humanity has an even greater neediness. The deepest needs of your body and your soul can only be met by God. If you turn on the evening news for just five minutes, it's clear that our world is filled with all sorts of troubles. It's a place of corruption, selfishness, suffering, and death. But these problems are not just outside us. The reasons that we have these issues in our world is because this corruption exists within us. The corruption of sin has affected you and me from the day that we were born. It distorts and defiles our desires, our thoughts, our instincts, our impulses, our consciences, our interpretations of reality. And what's worse, we act out of our sin-sick heart. We do all sorts of things that are detestable and dishonorable in the eyes of God. We disregard and disobey the great, perfect, almighty spirit who made us, who made us for himself. And unless God rescues us from our corruption, we will deserve to remain condemned under God's law, cursed under God's covenant, cut off from God's promises, contaminated by the uncleanness of our lusts, covered with shame. We will deserve the consequence of sin, which is the death of eternal fire. You can't fix your sin. You can't fix it with good excuses. You can't fix it with good intentions. You can't fix it with good behavior. There is no hope for your soul unless God himself helps you unless he heals you, unless he supplies you with saving faith 
and the one and only Savior of mankind, Jesus Christ. Friends, do you have this faith? In our text this evening, the Holy Spirit of God shows us what this faith is supposed to look like. Verse 9 is the climax of the story. Jesus marvels and says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And as we work through the text, I want to help you see what type of faith it is that Jesus found so that you and I can go home asking, does my faith look this way? Or do I have a wrong idea of what my faith should look like and what my faith, who my faith, should look to? With God's help, I'll show three simple features of genuine faith that need our attention. First, faith comes to Christ for help. Second, faith comes to Christ with humility. And third, faith comes to Christ with hope. Comes to Christ for help, with humility, and with hope. So first, faith comes to Christ for help. Faith comes to Christ for help. And by this, I don't just mean that the right kind of faith looks for help outside of that own person's self in general, but that that, that person's faith looks for help from Jesus specifically. To lay the framework for this, it's helpful to go back to Luke 4, where Jesus officially started his public ministry. Now, for some time, Jesus had been traveling around Jewish villages in the Sea of Galilee region, and he had been doing two primary things. First, he had been proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God was at hand, that at that very time, the promises of the Old Testament were in the process of being fulfilled. And second, Jesus was performing miracles to validate, to prove that what he was saying was, in fact, true. By the time we get to Luke 7, Jesus has developed quite a reputation. The Jewish people all across the region are earnest and eager to hear what Jesus has to say and to see the miracles that Jesus is doing. They want to experience these signs. They want to know who it is that has shown up in their region and what he's all about. Now, the Jewish people were not independent as a nation at this time, but were under the rule of the Roman Empire, under the rule of the Caesar. And because of this, Roman soldiers were stationed throughout all of Judea and all of the Sea of Galilee region. The ones who led those military groups were known as centurions. In the same way that a century involves, it includes 100 years, in the same way that a dollar has 100 cents, a centurion would typically rule over a group of soldiers numbering about 100. So centurions were clearly powerful men. They often had acquired a lot of wealth. They were very influential. And also the centurions often were not Jews. Certainly the one in our story was not. He was probably a Greek or a Roman. He was not accustomed from his childhood with worshiping Jehovah, but had likely spent his early years bowing down to Zeus or various other idols. And yet somewhere along the line, something had changed. 
This pagan military commander had turned aside from his false gods, and verse 5 indicates to us that this centurion had had a change of heart. He had developed a love for the Jewish people, a reverence even for their God, so that he poured out his own money in order to build a meeting house, a synagogue, for the Jews to worship in every Sabbath day. And one day, this centurion in our story had a servant who became severely ill. Verse 2 tells us that the servant was at the point of death. And the centurion realized this, this problem was too big for him. It didn't matter that he was a military commander, that he had influence. He couldn't fix death. And it was right at that time that the centurion heard about Jesus. He heard that Jesus was casting out demons, healing lepers, restoring the paralyzed, doing all sorts of amazing things that could only be done by the power of God. And this centurion believed these reports. He believed what he heard, even though he hadn't seen anything yet. He believed that Jesus, and only Jesus, could save his servant. This centurion, by faith, turned to Jesus for help. You'll notice from the text there's no indication that the centurion asked two or three people for ideas before going to Jesus. Jesus wasn't the fourth-string quarterback. He wasn't just one possible option among many other viable opportunities. The centurion came to Jesus first. He came to Jesus exclusively because he seems to have really understood that Jesus' power and authority were not like the power and authority of other men. Jesus' power and authority was the power and authority of God. And it seems that Luke is setting us up to come to the same conclusion. In Luke 4.32, a few chapters earlier, the Jews are astonished when Jesus taught them. Why? Because his word possessed authority. After Jesus cast the demon out of a man, Luke 4.36 tells us that all the people were amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And in Luke 5.24, Jesus heals a man of his paralysis. And why does he do that? Well, Jesus tells us why. So that it would be clear that he, the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins, which the Jews just moments before had acknowledged. That's something only God can do. Over and over again, the text presses us to see that Jesus has authority that's otherworldly. And the centurion gets it. The centurion realized that if his own limited human authority in the Roman army was forceful and effective, then the divine authority of Jesus must be even more so. And so the centurion tells Jesus, just say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority. I say, uh, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion affirms that the authority of Jesus isn't limited to the people that he touches, 
It isn't limited to the people that Jesus is physically near to. But the very word of Jesus carries authority that is supernatural. When Jesus speaks, evil spirits must flee. Wounds must become healed. Blind eyes must not remain in darkness. Even death itself, by necessity, is forced to give up its victims. Look around the world today. Consider who your heroes might be, whether they're politicians or PhDs or pastors or parents. At the end of the day, all these people are just needy creatures like you and me. They can't rescue humanity. There is a neediness that we have that other human beings cannot meet. There are many false saviors who make big promises and who just leave you with a big feeling of emptiness. You can't even depend on your own abilities, the strength of your own mind, the strength of your body. You can't even depend on the strength or the purity of your own faith. Your faith must not rest upon strength that is merely human, which is here today and gone tomorrow. But your faith needs to rest on the strength and authority of the divine Son of God. You set your faith on Christ and on Him only. Come to Him for help. And for those of you who have come to Christ with this faith, who are clinging to Him for help right now, don't forget how far His power reaches. When you're experiencing distress, it can sometimes feel really frustrating that you can't see Jesus and take hold of him with your senses. You can't send messengers down the road to Jesus' house like the centurion did. You can't have him hold your hand in the hospital room. But even though Jesus is no longer physically on earth, this doesn't mean that he's somehow further away from us or limited in his ability to assist. In fact, Jesus is now in the best possible position to help because after Jesus' public ministry, after he was crucified, after he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven itself. He sat down at the right hand of God. And from his position right now, in the near presence of the Father, wielding all of heaven's authority, he speaks for you. He's advocating for his people. The same strong voice that spoke, that spoke space and time into existence, that created light from the darkness, the same voice that upholds the universe by the word of his own power, Jesus' voice. It's the same voice that's speaking on, on your behalf right now in the near presence of God the Father. And so every Christian can cry out with the centurion, Jesus, just say the word and all will be well. Speak, Jesus, and all must go according to your command. Faith comes to this Jesus for help. But when faith comes to Christ, 
It comes with a certain posture, a certain attitude. Faith comes to Christ with humility. And this is my second point. Faith comes to Christ with humility. For the next few minutes, we're going to focus on verses 3 through 6. And in these verses, I want you to notice the difference between the words of the Jewish elders and the words of the centurion. You'll see in verse 3 that the centurion sent some of the Jewish elders to ask for Jesus' help on his behalf. And these Jewish elders are apparently friends with the centurion, and they respect him. They understand that he's, he's a devout, kind of God-fearing sort of Gentile. But they're concerned that Jesus doesn't know that. And because this army officer was a non-Jewish foreigner, the elders think that they need to convince Jesus that the centurion has somehow merited God's favor. And so they come and they say, Jesus, this man loves our nation. He built our synagogue. This is a good man. This is a worthy man. They imply that this Roman soldier has earned a miracle, that he deserves it. I want you to notice here, this seems to be the sort of disbelief that Jesus notices as a pattern in Israel. Many of the Jews living at this time likely thought exactly this way. They thought that God's blessing came to people who earned it. And many Jews were under the impression that they had met God's mark. They perhaps even imagined that they had gone above and beyond what God's law expected of them. And as a result, God owed them. They were entitled to heavenly rewards. God was now obligated to love them and bless them and save them and to praise them for how amazing they were. Does this sound like you? Do you say, Jesus, I am worthy to receive the answer to my prayer. You owe it to me. Look at all that I've done for you. I've been a decent person. I take good care of my body. I read my Bible most of the time. I don't fight with other people. I recycle. I always try to be polite. I even tithe to the church. I'm good, Jesus. Surely if anyone deserves a miracle, it's me. This is how the Jews thought. They should have known better. They should have been looking for God to save them. They should have seen their inability to meet God's demands. But instead of looking to the Lord, they leaned on themselves. And this way of thinking is not the way of faith in Christ. The Jews trusted in their family status. They trusted in their animal sacrifices. They trusted in their religious rituals and traditions. But ultimately, they had faith in what they brought to the table instead of trusting exclusively in what God himself provided. The Jewish elders came to God with pride and self-righteousness instead of coming to God with humility to confess their unrighteousness. But what does the centurion say? Well, in verse 6, somehow the centurion finds out that Jesus is on the way to his house. 
And the centurion sends another message saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. You see the difference. The Jews believed that Jesus would bring healing because the centurion was a good man. Because they thought that the centurion deserved it. But the centurion recognizes that he does not deserve this miracle. He is not trusting in his own prestige, not trusting in his own power, not trusting in his own works or accomplishments. He's coming to Jesus for help and he realizes that he's bringing nothing to contribute except for his absolute neediness. And this is what it means to have faith in Christ. We come to him humbly, admitting that there is nothing good in us that makes us worthy of his grace. That old hymn, Rock of Ages, it explains what a heart of humility looks like as we draw near to Christ. We say, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And the hymn goes on. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And why is it that we'll die without Jesus? It's because the repayment we deserve for our sin is death. See, these Jewish elders, they saw that the centurion's servant was near to death, that he was dying. But they failed to see that their sin had brought them to the point of death. They couldn't see that they were unworthy to receive the miracle of salvation that they needed for their very own souls. But meanwhile, this centurion, he cries out to Jesus, and it's not because he believes he deserves anything, but because he depends on Jesus to supply everything. The faith that God commends is a humble faith. It's humbling enough to ask for help in the first place, but it requires even more humility to admit that we haven't earned God's help that we can't pay him back for our salvation, that we're not worthy to have him come near to us to help us. But even even though all of this is true, even though we aren't worthy, even though you and I are not entitled to receive any mercy, any kindness from God, we can still come to him with eager expectation, with hope. And this is my third point. Faith comes to Christ with hope. The fact that the centurion bothered to come to Jesus in the first place is an active demonstration that he had an expectation that Jesus not only could, but would do something about his problem. There is no question that the God who created the cosmos out of nothing, that he's unlimited in his power, There's no question that a God like this is able to heal the sick, that he's able to give life to the dead, that he's able to make a way 
for sinners to be saved from the penalty and the power and the presence of their sin. God has the ability to do all these things and more. But here's the question that we often wrestle with. Does God want to do these things? Does God really look at my messed up family life, my complaining heart, my self-pity, my self-loathing, my arrogance, my unbelief, my greediness for more money and entertainment? And does he really want to show kindness to me? To heal me? To notice me? To love me? Let me use some of Jesus' own words to answer. Just a little while earlier, back in Luke 5.32, this is how Jesus explains his mission. He says here, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And in Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus says something like it. He affirms that he, the Son of Man, has come, why? To seek and to save the lost. Not the found, not the self-righteous, the lost. In other words, Jesus' mission, his goal is to seek and to save lost sinners. You may feel unforgivable. You may feel that the, the evils that you've done in the past are irreversible. But you are never too lost for as long as you're in this life, you are never too lost for Jesus to seek and save you. Jesus has come to call sinners like you and me to repentance, to rescue us out of disbelief and darkness, to lead us into faith and life. And since this is Jesus' objective, we can approach him with great hope with an eager expectation that we're exactly the type of people that he wants to help. The centurion, you have to remember, he was likely a Roman, certainly some type of non-Jew. He was not circumcised. He wasn't a part of Israel. He didn't have any sort of connection at that time to the promises of God that had been made to the children of Abraham. He was an outsider And many of the Jews would have considered him to be unclean and despicable. And this military commander realized it didn't matter how how much he impressed people, how muscular and masculine he was. It was all meaningless. His earthly power, his earthly status, it was of no advantage. In the eyes of Almighty God, this centurion knew that he was unworthy. And yet, he recognized the grace of God. He recognized that Christ would work on his behalf, and he came with hope. See, his his own sense of unworthiness, it didn't stop him from coming to seek help from Jesus. And it shouldn't stop you. And in Luke 7.10, I want you to see this. God confirms his gracious character even to this outsider when we read these words. 
When those who had been sent returned to the house, that is to the house of the centurion, they found the servant well. Jesus did not reject this unworthy soldier's request. He doesn't use this opportunity to speak words of judgment to bring humiliation. Instead, he speaks words of mercy to bring healing. So when your heart aches, when you sense your helplessness, your grotesqueness before a holy God, don't despair. The gracious purposes of God the Father haven't changed. The gracious mission of Christ to seek and save the lost is still operative. The gracious Spirit of God is still moving to bring life to dry bones. We have reason for confidence as we approach God, not because of our goodness, but because of His grace, because of His provision. This is the foundation of our hope. And some days, having this hope will be very easy. When you call out to God, it feels like He's right there that he's carrying you through that difficult situation, that he's giving you success with a hard project at work, that he's showing you the path ahead when just a short time before, everything seemed like darkness. But of course, other days, holding on to this hope is going to be much harder. You'll come to Christ for help, but you'll go weeks, months, maybe even years without seeing any sort of improvement. The temptation to be bitter, impatient, and angry will rise up in your heart because it may feel like help will never come. But a hope that's set on Christ will not disappoint you. He will be your help, even if his help takes a different form than what you were expecting. You see, often we look for God to give us comfort, success, blessedness in this life, But Jesus himself said that his kingdom is not of this world. Certainly, we will see the realities of his kingdom breaking into this world from time to time. But we should not expect in this life to see every good desire fulfilled and every prayer answered precisely the way we requested. But what we should expect is that God will continue to be gracious for as long as he continues to be God. You and I should pray big prayers, expectant prayers, hopeful prayers. We should expect that God will hear and that God will help. And if it seems that you're receiving less help from God than you would expect in this life, It's only because Jesus is planning to do infinitely more than you expect in the eternal kingdom to come. Of course, in order to enter this eternal kingdom, you and I need Jesus. I don't want you to walk away tonight thinking that all you need to do is to try harder or to believe better. It's not that faith in general saves The only faith that saves is faith in Christ. We need Jesus. And without him, our situation is far worse 
than the situation that the centurion servant was in. We need Jesus to convince us of our neediness, to crucify our guilt and shame, to clothe us with his perfect righteousness. Jesus alone can put your sin to death and raise your soul to immortal happiness. Won't you come to this Jesus for help? Don't wait until you have your life put together because it never will be all the way put together. You'll never come. And don't wait until your life falls apart because he wants you to call now. If you've been waiting for God to give you a special sign or invitation, then consider that this is it. The sign he gives you is the sign of his beloved son who gives life to the dying. The invitation he gives you is the invitation of his own authoritative word. The good news that any who walk by humble, hopeful faith in this Jesus will be helped by God. Of course, if you've already entrusted your own soul to Christ, that doesn't mean that this has no application for you. Because the centurion did not cry out only for himself, but for his friend. Who is it that you know who's at the point of eternal death? Who is it that you need to be praying for? Who you need to speak up before? To call Christ to come to help. Your children? Your neighbor? Your co-workers? Let's be a people that consistently go to Christ for help. Whether it's for ourselves, whether it's for our neighbor. Let's go with humility knowing that we deserve nothing. Let's go with confidence, with hope, knowing that Jesus is eager to save. And let's marvel together in the goodness and the grace of our God. Please pray with me. Father, one of the songs that we often sing is that we need thee every hour. And yet how often, how many hours is it that we don't see it? So help us to see our neediness. And help us to not see our neediness so that we would despair, but so that we would run to Christ for help. Not as individuals who think, I just need him to bump me up one extra level, but to realize that we have no levels. The Christ alone is our life, and without him, we are dead. Give us a, a humble dependency on Jesus, and one that is shored up by hope in your grace and your unchanging character. And I pray, Lord, that as we rest in Christ ourselves, 
that we would call out to you on behalf of others and that you would work mightily to continue to show your grace in our age that our children, our neighbors, our co-workers, the university staff and faculty, individuals at the Capitol and across the state, CEOs, members of business, large and small, hospital workers, our whole region would know, would taste, would see that Christ is good and that he alone can help them. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.